This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 6 Sustaining Common Grace Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, in keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. Deuteronomy 8, 11, 17, and 19. Here is the paradox of Deuteronomy 8. The blessings of God can lead to the cursings of God. God's gifts can also lead to arrogance and the temptation to think of oneself as autonomous. Autonomy leads to false worship. False worship leads to destruction. Therefore, what appears to be a good thing, wealth, can become a snare and a delusion. A person's or society's preliminary external obedience to biblical law produces benefits that in turn lead to the destruction of that individual or people who are only in external conformity to the law, but not motivated by an inner ethical transformation. For the unregenerate, the blessings of God become the means of God's judgment against them in history. The external victories of covenant breakers become a prelude to disaster for them. The prophets warned the victorious invading armies concerning what God would do to them after he had used them as his rod of discipline against Israel. Isaiah 13-23, through Zephaniah 2 Common Law, Common Curse The dual relationship between common law and common curse is a necessary backdrop for God's plan of the ages. Take, for example, the curse of Adam. Adam and his heirs are burdened with frail bodies with, that grow sick and die. Before the flood, there was a much longer life expectancy for mankind. The longest life recorded in the Bible... Methuselah's, Noah's grandfather, was 969 years. Methuselah died in, that, in the year that the great flood began. Thus, as far as human life is concerned, the greatest sign of God's common grace, long life, was given to men just before the greatest removal of common grace recorded in history, the flood. This is extremely significant for the thesis of this book, The Extension of Common Grace to Man. The external blessings of God that are given to mankind in general is a prelude to a great curse for the unregenerate. We read in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, as well as in the 28th chapter, that men can be lured into a snare by looking upon the external gifts from God, while forgetting the heavenly source of the gifts and the covenantal terms under which the gifts were given. The gift of long life was given to mankind in general, not as a sign of God's favor, but as a prelude to his almost total destruction of the seed of Adam. Only his special grace to Noah and his family preserved mankind. Thus, the mere existence of external blessing at any point in time is not proof of a favorable attitude toward man on the part of God. In the first stage, that of covenantal faithfulness, God's special grace is extended widely within a culture. The second stage that of external blessings in response to covenantal faithfulness, is intended to reinforce men's faith in the reality 
and validity of God's covenants. Deuteronomy 8.18 But this second stage can lead to a third stage, covenantal or ethical forgetfulness. Deuteronomy 8.17 The key fact which must be borne in mind is that this third stage cannot be distinguished from the second stage in terms of measurements of the blessings. Economic growth indicators, for example, an increase of external blessings should lead to the positive feedback of a faithful culture, victory unto victory. But it can lead to stage three, namely, forgetfulness. This leads to stage four, destruction, Deuteronomy 8, 19, and 20. It therefore requires special grace to maintain the faithfulness, blessing, faithfulness, blessing, relationship of positive feedback and compound growth. Nevertheless, common grace plays a definite role in reinforcing men's commitment to the law order of God. Everyone in the Hebrew commonwealth, including the stranger who was within the gates, benefited from Israel's increase in external blessings. Like the increase in crumbs falling from the table of the faithful, so are the external blessings of God to an unregenerate but externally obedient and submissive population during a time of great special grace to the faithful. Therefore, the curse aspect of the common grace-common curse relationship can be progressively removed for a time, until at last the unregenerate can stand their external submission no longer, and they rise up in rebellion, despite the threat of the looming curse. During these times of peace, common grace either increases or else the mere removal of common cursing makes it appear that common grace is increasing. Better theologians than I am can debate this point. The Reinforcement of Special Grace The fact is, the unregenerate are like Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost. They would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. They would rather destroy the authority of the covenantally faithful than live in a world of blessings and progress. Ethics is ultimately more fundamental than economic self-interest. These people are envious. They prefer to pull down those above them, even though they themselves will suffer loss, losses. They hate living under the table of God's people, no matter how many crumbs fall to them. Without special grace being extended by God, without continual conversions of men, the positive feedback of Deuteronomy 8.18 cannot be maintained. A disastrous reduction of external blessings can be counted on by those who are not regenerate, if their numbers and influence are becoming dominant in the community. Sodom is the best example of this process. Sodom's Salt Sodom was the most beautiful area of Canaan. When Abraham gave Lot his choice of land, Lot picked Sodom, for it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest into Zoar. Genesis 13.10 The evil men of Sodom lived in the best of Canaan's land. Yet during Lot's generation, God would destroy every trace of Sodom and Gomorrah, burning them with fire from above. What better representation of the last judgment in all the history of man. The other, as David Chilton demonstrates in Days of Vengeance, was God's destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple in 70 A.D. Were the Sodomites vessels of wrath? Assuredly. Did God shower them with blessings? Yes. Did God then shower them with fire? Yes. So at the peak of their blessings, they became totally perverse, perverse in every sense of the word. Then God wiped them from the face of the earth and out of history. He cut off their future, their inheritance. Even the productivity of the land was destroyed. This was symbolized by the pillar of salt that Lot's wife became. Salt was used to salt over a productive area, 
so that it would never grow crops again and never be a place of shelter. This is why Abimelech salted over Shechem, Jude, Judges 9.45. It is also why God required the priests to salt the first fruit offering, Leviticus 2.13, a symbolism of the permanent salting to come in eternity. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Mark 9.49 God's fire is the ultimate salt, the final destruction of reprobate man's ability to exercise dominion. When regenerate Lot, who was the only source of special grace in Sodom, was removed from Sodom, and the unregenerate men, who had been set up for destruction by God, no longer were protected by Lot's presence among them, their crack of doom sounded. Genesis 18 and 19 the effects were felt in Lot's family, for his wife looked back and suffered the consequences of her disobedience, 1926, and his daughters committed sin, 1930-38. But it had been Lot's presence among the Sodomites that had held off God's judgment against them, 1921-22. and 22. The same was true of Noah. Until the ark was completed, the world was safe from the great flood. The people seemed to be prospering. Methuselah lived a long life, but after him, the lifespan of mankind steadily declined. Aaron died at age 123, Numbers 33-39. Moses died at age 120, Deuteronomy 31-2. But this longevity was not normal, even in their day. In a psalm of Moses, he said that, The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Psalm 90, 10. What has this got to do with common grace? It illustrates the central theme of this book. God grants evil men common grace in the form of external blessings. Then he destroys them. The greater the common grace, the greater their rebellion. The greater their rebellion, compared to God's common grace, the greater God's judgment against them. Sodom is the model. They were the chief beneficiaries of God's increasing common grace. They then became the chief objects of God's wrath. It appeared that they would be able to exercise increasing dominion. Then, in the midst of their prosperity, he utterly destroyed them. First, God grants men the continuity of his long-suffering common grace. This can go on for several generations. Then he brings the discontinuity of his incomparable judgment when men fail to respond in covenantal faith to God's blessings. What we have to say is that common grace increases as history progresses, but this points to the final judgment. When the sodomites of life, in the midst of their prosperity and power, attempt to remove the God-fearing sources of God's special grace from their midst, or attempt to sodomize them, they have symbolically attacked the table of the Lord. God then burns them with fire. He see, we see this in the AIDS epidemic that will eliminate most homosexuals before the year 2000. It will also bankrupt or radically transform all public, socialized, healthcare facilities. It may even spread to the general population. God will not be mocked. Removing Special Grace The thesis of this book is that the best way to explain common grace is by comparing it to the crumbs that fall to sinners who sit under the table of the Lord. The key question with respect to the timing of God's judgment against sinners is this. When do they attempt to destroy the table of the Lord? In other words, when do they do their ethically consistent best to kill, remove, or persecute God's church? God extends grace to them for the sake of his people. He extended an extra century or so to the men of Noah's day in order to give Noah sufficient time to build the ark. Once a place of refuge was available for Noah, 
God sent the flood and destroyed all flesh outside the ark. God made Sodom a lovely land in order to lure Lot there. Lot served as savor salt to them initially, as a testimony to God's special grace, and then as judgment salt. Lot's testimony of special grace served to condemn the Sodomites. They rejected his testimony, including the testimony of hospitality shown to strangers, angels. Then they attacked God's church, Lot's family, and the angels led Lot, his wife, and two daughters to safety. Then, when God had completely delivered the source of special grace from their clutches, he brought final judgment on them. Gomorrah was tossed in as a kind of extra added attraction. Lot's wife could not resist the spectacular show. She turned and looked. She demonstrated that she was not the salt of salvation. The rule is either salt or be salted. The pharaoh of Joseph's day was made wealthy because he believed Joseph and obeyed Joseph. Egypt got wealthy in order to further the plan of God for his people. In the short run, they were fed. In the long run, they were persecuted. In their final run, they spoiled the Egyptians, and their exodus led to the destruction of Egypt's army, and probably their invasion and defeat by the Amalekites. Another example is his grace to the Canaanites. He allowed them to remain in the land to care for it, not because he favored them, but because he wanted to give them sufficient time to fill up their iniquity, Genesis 15:16. In the actual invasion by the Israelites, which took seven years, he extended some cities extra time so that the, that the beasts would not take over the land while the fighting was going on. But when they fought the Israelites, he destroyed them. The only exception was the Gibeonites, who tricked the Israelites and subordinated themselves to Israel. When the beneficiaries of common grace attack the source of both common grace and special grace, the church, then they bring God's judgment in history down on their heads. The table of the Lord falls on them. This is the meaning of Revelation 20, 8 and 9. The final judgment is the final collapse of God's table on the reprobate, cursing them for all eternity. Millennial Blessings As I pointed out at the beginning of chapter 4, the book of Isaiah prophesies a future era of the restoration of long life. This external, external blessing will be given to all men, saints, and sinners. It is therefore a sign of extended common grace. It is a gift to mankind in general. Isaiah 65.20 tells us, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. The gift of long life shall come, though the sinner's long life has a special curse attached to it. Long life is simply extra time for him to fill up his days of iniquity and increase his punishment in eternity. Nevertheless, the infants will not die, which is a fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, namely, the absence of miscarriages. Exodus 23:26. If there is any passage in Scripture that absolutely refutes the amillennial position, it is this one. This is not a prophecy of the new heavens and the new earth in their post-final judgment form, but it is a prophecy of the pre-final judgment manifestation of the preliminary stages of the new heavens and new earth, an earnest down payment of our expectations. There will still be sinners in this world, and they will receive long life. But to them it will be an ultimate curse, meaning a special curse. It will be a special curse to evildoers, because an exceptionally long life is a common blessing, the reduction of the common curse. Again, we need the concept of common grace to give significance to both special grace and common curse. Common grace, reduced common curse, brings special curses to the rebels. There will be peace on earth extended to men of good will. Luke 2.14 But this means that there will also be peace on earth extended to evil men. 
Peace is given to the just as a reward for their covenantal faithfulness. It is given to the unregenerate in order to heap coals of fire on their heads. Final Judgment and Common Grace An understanding of common grace is essential for an understanding of the final act of human history before the judgment of God. To the extent that this book contributes anything new to Christian theology, it is its contribution to an understanding of the final rebellion of the unregenerate. The final rebellion has been used by those opposing postmillennialism as final proof that there will be no faith on earth among the masses of men who, when Christ returns. The devil will be loosed for a little season at the end of time, meaning his power over the nations returns to him in full strength. Revelation 20, 3. However, this rebellion is short-lived. He surrounds the holy city, meaning the church of the faithful, only to be cut down in final judgment. Revelation 20, 7-15. Therefore, conclude the critics of postmillennialism, there is a resounding negative answer to Christ's question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? Luke 18.8 Where then is the supposed cultural victory before Christ comes in glory, which postmillennialists predict will come? The doctrine of common grace provides us with the biblical answer. God's law is the primary form of common grace. It is written in the hearts of believers. We read it in Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. But the work of the law is written in the heart of every man, Romans 2, 14 and 15. Thus, the work of the law is universal, common. This common access to God's law is mankind's foundation of the fulfilling of the universal dominion covenant to subdue the earth, Genesis 1, 28. The command was given to all men through Adam. It was reaffirmed by God with the family of Noah, Genesis 9, 1 through 7. God's promises of external blessings are conditional to man's fulfillment of external laws. The reason why men can gain the blessings is because the knowledge of the work of the law is common. This is why there can be outward cooperation between Christians and non-Christians for certain earthly ends. From time to time, unbelievers are enabled by God to adhere more closely to the work of the law that is written in their hearts. These periods of cultural adherence can last for centuries, at least with respect to some aspects of human culture, the arts, science, philosophy. The Greeks maintained a high level of culture inside the limited confines of the Greek city-states for a few centuries. The Chinese maintained their culture until it grew stagnant, in response to Confucian philosophy in what we call the Middle Ages. But in the West, the ability of the unregenerate to act in closer conformity to the work of the law written in their hearts has been the result of the historical leadership provided by the cultural triumph of Christianity. In short, special grace increased in the West, leading to an extension of common grace throughout Western culture. Economic growth has increased. Indeed, the concept of linear, compound growth is unique to the West, and the theological foundations of this belief were laid by the Reformation. Calvin had distinctly postmillennial leanings, although these were partially offset by a degree of amillennial pessimism. It was during the period 1560 to 1640 that many of the English Puritans adopted postmillennialism, and this doctrine was fundamental in changing the time perspective of the Puritan merchants who laid the foundations of modern capitalism. Longer lifespans have also appeared in the West, primarily due to the application of technology to living conditions. Applied technology is, in turn, a product of Christianity and especially Protestant Christianity. In the era prophesied by Isaiah, unbelievers will once again come to know the benefits of God's law. No longer shall they almost totally twist God's revelation to them, the churl shall no longer be called liberal, Isaiah 32, 5. Law will be respected by unbelievers, 
This means that they will turn away from an open, more consistent worship of the gods of chaos and the philosophy of ultimate randomness, including evolutionary randomness. They will participate in the external cultural blessings brought to them by the preaching of the whole counsel of God, including His law. The earth will be subdued to the glory of God, including the cultural world. Unbelievers will fulfill their roles in the achievement of the terms of the Dominion Covenant. This is why a theology that is orthodox must include a doctrine of common grace that is intimately related to biblical law. Law does not save men's souls, but partial obedience to it does save their bodies and their culture. Christ is the Savior of all, especially those who are the elect. 1 Timothy 4.10 Antinomian Revivalism versus Reconstruction The blessings in cultural victory taught by the Bible and adequately commented upon by postmillennialists will not be the products of some form of pietistic, semi-monastic revivalism. The merely soteriological preaching of pietism, the salvation of souls by special grace, is not sufficient to bring the victories foretold in the Bible. The whole counsel of God must and will be preached. This means that the law of God must and will be preached. The external blessings will come in response to the covenantal faithfulness of God's people. The majority of men will be converted, at least during some periods of time. The unconverted will not the unconverted will not follow their official philosophy of chaos to its logical conclusions, for such a philosophy leads to ultimate impotence. It throws away the tool of reconstruction, biblical law. They want power, not impotence. The great defect with the postmillennial revival inaugurated by Jonathan Edwards and his followers in the mid eighteenth century was their neglect of biblical law. They expected to see the blessings of God come as a result of merely soteriological preaching. Look at Edwards's treatise on the religious affections. There is nothing on the law of God or culture. Page after page is filled with the words sweet and sweetness. A diabetic reader is almost risking a relapse by reading this book in one sitting. The words sometimes appear three or four times on a page. And while Edwards was preaching the sweetness of God, Armenian semi-literates were hot gospeling the Holy Commonwealth of Connecticut, into political antinomianism, where sweetness and emotional hot flashes are concerned, Calvinistic antinomian preaching is no match for Armenian antinomian sermons. The Great Awakening of the 1700s faded and was followed by the Armenian revival of the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening, leaving emotionally burned over districts, cults, and the Unitarian-dominated abolitionist movement as its devastating legacy. Because the postmillennial preaching of the Edwardians was culturally antinomian and pietistic, it crippled the remnants of Calvinistic political order in the New England colonies, helping to produce a vacuum that Arminianism and then Unitarianism filled. Progress culturally, economically, and politically is intimately linked to the extension and application of biblical law. The blessings promised in Romans chapter 11 concerning the effects of the promised conversion of Israel, not necessarily of the state of Israel, to the gospel, will be in part the product of biblical law. But these blessings do not necessarily include universal re re regeneration. The blessings only require the extension of Christian culture. For the long-term progress of culture, of course, this increase of common grace, or reduction of the common curse, must be reinforced, rejuvenated and renewed by special grace conversions. But the blessings can remain for a generation or more after special grace has been removed. And as far as the external benefits can be measured, it will not be possible 
to tell whether the blessings are part of the positive feedback program, Deuteronomy 8.18, or a prelude to God's judgment, Deuteronomy 8.19 and 20. God respects His conditional external covenants. External conformity to His law gains external blessings. These, in the last analysis, at the final judgment, produce coals for unregenerate heads. Conclusion The law of God is a tool of dominion. There can be no long-term dominion in defiance of it. When men adhere to its principles externally, they receive God's external blessings. This is common grace. Covenant breakers are blessed because in their external lives they are not actively breaking the covenant. They live under the shelter of the table of the people of God. They respond in outward obedience to biblical law and or to the work of the law written in their hearts. This common grace obedience brings external blessings. It may also bring external influence. These blessings do not point to the salvation of unregenerate people. If anything, they point to their coming destruction. For reprobates always grow arrogant when they receive God's covenantal blessings. This arrogance leads to their external destruction. But for a time, it appears that they are arrogantly dominant, that there is no covenantal relationship between covenantal faithfulness and covenantal blessings. The third stage of the process of decline, autonomy with blessings, Deuteronomy 8.17, will eventually be followed by the fourth stage, destruction, Deuteronomy 8.19-20. This means that special grace alone can preserve the common grace within a culture. The positive feedback between faith and blessings requires additional faith to sustain the growth process. Common grace is not autonomous. The belief that it is autonomous is a sinful conclusion of the unbelievers, Deuteronomy 8.17. Thus, as God's special grace increases over time, we should expect to see His common grace increase, until the day that the unregenerate can stand their submission no longer and they rebel. As the breads on the table increases, the crumbs under the table increase. That there will be a final rebellion at the end of the millennium is no testimony against post-millennialism. It is a testimony to the heart of unregenerate men. They will experience the blessings, and they will have in their hands the tools of dominion. They will, as, as always, choose the power religion over autonomous man over the dominion religion of subordination before God. They will rebel. But this final rebellion will be cut short by God's final judgment. The power religion can bring short-term external victory to ethical rebels. The empires of history no doubt subdued the church from time to time. But they did not conquer the church, for it is the bride of Christ. Thus, the fact that the rebels can surround the church in that final rebellion only testifies to the short-term power of the power religionists. This power does not last long. The church is not destroyed. Instead, the power religionists are destroyed. Any attempt to preach salvation without the law is futile. The law is the basis of affirming the covenant. It is the basis of positive feedback culturally. Those who preach post-millennial victory apart from adherence to the law are simply pietists in disguise. And post-millennial pietism has always fallen into emotionalism, morbid introspection and cultural defeat. Jonathan Edwards is the classic example. He was not the last Puritan. He was the destroyer of the remnant of Puritanism. In summary, number 1. Biblical law is a tool of dominion, a gift from God. 2. External adherence to the law brings external blessings. 3. External blessings tempt evil men to believe that they produce the blessings autonomously. 4. Autonomy leads to destruction by God. 5. The extension of common grace to covenant breakers leads to their ultimate rebellion and defeat. 6. Common grace requires further extensions of special grace in order to be sustained. 7. Common grace will increase 
Isaiah tells us, the reestablishment of very long lives. 8. Common grace will increase, Isaiah says, an increase in epistemological self-consciousness, leading to the proper identification of churls. 9. Peace on earth will come to ethical rebels, so long as they remain faithful and subordinate to biblical law. 10. God's law is a primary manifestation of common grace. 11. The work of the law in all men's hearts testifies to this universal aspect of common grace. 12. Preaching that ignores God's law is antinomian and pietistic. 13. Pietism cannot sustain an advancing Christian culture, for it it abandons the tool of dominion, biblical law. 14. External blessings, apart from repentance, are a prelude to covenantal judgment. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.